heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to the Voice of a Nation. I'm your host, Delana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. My guest today is the Sheriff of Bristol County, Massachusetts, Thomas Hodgson. Sheriff Hodgson has been the Sheriff of Bristol County since 1997. He recently made news when the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that Bristol County Sheriff's Office can generate and collect revenues by charging inmates for their telephone call. A decision, a decision that Sheriff Hodgson called a win for taxpayers. And welcome to the Voice of a Nation on America Out Loud. Now you've been Sheriff of Bristol County for 25 years and you have worked hard to bring law and order to your county. I'd like to talk about two things today. The growing problem of illegal immigrants in our country and how it affects law and order in Massachusetts and particularly in Bristol County and about the recent horrific murder of little children in a small elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Sounds great, Lauren. Thank you for having me. It's my great pleasure. Let's begin with the problem of illegal immigrants that you have faced, that you run into, and where it stands today. I can remember that when I was in Massachusetts and I was working with your office, that there was already a problem with illegal immigrants. And I understand that it's a lot worse now. Well, yeah, it it certainly is. And I've been working on this issue for 25 years. I've been back and forth to Washington, going back to the days of uh, a bill that was filed by uh, Henry Hyde and Barney Frank, a bipartisan bill to begin on immigration reform, which never went anywhere uh, because... I remember after it passed the House, it went to the Senate side, and I went to Senator Kerry's office. I, I said, this bill really needs to get through the Senate now. It's the beginnings of reform. The chief of staff said, that's never going to happen. That wow. bill's not going anywhere. I said, what do you mean? It just passed the House. They said, nope, that bill won't see the light of day. I said, why not? She said, it's because it's an election year. And that has been sort of the marching order of Congress on immigration and the failure of them to deal with the immigration problem and uphold the rule of law that they passed. And now here we are, the citizens who they were supposed to protect are now being victimized in so many different ways, Ilana. Look at the number of people who have died at the hands of these criminal illegal aliens. More and more are coming in this country every year now. We had 234,000 come across that were identified, not, not the ones that were gotaways which is about another 67,000 probably. That's the equivalent of two of my major cities by population. And the question I always have is, where are there two cities sitting vacant with police departments, police officers, firefighters, grocery stores, hospitals, medical facilities, jobs, and and vacant houses for these people to just move into and have an infrastructure to support them? The fact is there aren't any. And I'm only talking about one month. So the question then becomes, where are they going? And the the answer is, they're being flown in and busted to our cities and towns in the cloak of darkness because the, and this Biden administration knows what they're doing 
is completely contrary to what is expected of them as elected officials to uphold the rule of law and protect the citizens of our communities. So we are now seeing angel moms and dads over the years, and it's year after year after year, who've lost their children at the hands of these criminal illegal aliens, never mind, and I'm talking about, about crimes committed against them, never mind the fentanyl now that's pouring in by these cartels that are causing moms and dads to go in and try to wake their kids up to go to work or school, and they're not waking up. And it's the leading cause of death between 18 and 42-year-old people in this country. And the members of Congress, and particularly the Biden administration, who really has basically just opened the borders and said, come on in, they're the ones that continue to do it knowing that these people are dying and essentially saying to the angel moms and dads, hey, you know your kid that died five years ago? Well, his life didn't matter or her life didn't matter. And neither will the three or four tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And the reason is, is because our politics are more important than your families. That's such a tragedy. You know, it, it, it's, it boggles the mind that we haven't gotten it yet, that we are responsible. We, as Americans, are responsible for keeping our people, Amer the American people, safe. And somehow our government, under the Biden administration, has completely lost view of that. They don't seem to care about keeping Americans safe. No, they don't. And, you know, I dealt with Secretary Mayorkas when he was in the Obama administration as a deputy secretary. And I remember walking out of the first meeting with him. I was with a couple other sheriffs down at DHS headquarters in Washington. And I'd never met him before, but after that first meeting, I walked out and I turned to the sheriff that was with me and I said, that guy right there is a liar. He's using his silver tongue to try to pretend he really is interested or the things he's saying are really going to happen. And I'm telling you they're not. And you know what? He's proven to me that that's the case. And for the American people to see a guy like Secretary Mayorkas, who now is the head of DHS, look them in the eye and blatantly lie to them and say the borders are secure, while the people you can see on TV are just pouring across. And the families seeing in our neighborhoods from the border to Massachusetts, the impacts of these people coming in who are knowingly breaking the law. He's essentially saying, you know what, you all are idiots and you need to just listen to what I'm saying because I have a title and that's the truth of it all. When in fact, he knows that it's not. We were talking about it when he was in the Obama administration, how bad it was getting. And now it's just completely, completely out of control. So from my perspective, Alana, not only are they responsible, but you made the point. We are responsible. We as Americans. Because if we allow this fraud to go on with Washington and the White House and continue, then basically at some point we become complicit in the loss of all those families who will never have a wedding or a birthday or a grandchild with kids that were, were taken out, lost their lives by people who government sanctioned and helped get into our communities at our expense. Not only are we not dealing with it, but it's getting more serious and more dangerous every day. Now, you had, over the years, a strong relationship with ICE. What happened with that? 
So I've been doing immigration detention for 25 years since I became the sheriff. I built the immigration detention facility uh, to house detainees here at our Dartmouth complex. And I opened it in 2007. I built it with no state money and used it to house approximately on average about 220 detainees. It, it saved taxpayers money from shipping them other parts of the country. And it provided the, the families of those individuals to be able to come here and plan if they were going to be deported and they were, the others were going to be left behind, how are they going to support themselves and whatever, whatever else had to be done. We were doing that. We were also doing the transportation to and from New York to take those being deported, dropping them off at JFK airport with uh, the DHS buses. And then we also started a 287G program, which allowed my people, when somebody got arrested by a police department, to, when they were brought to us, we were able, the ones that were trained by ICE that worked for me, they were able to run the information and the backgrounds of those individuals in the database of ICE and also have the authority to hold them if, in fact, ICE determined that they needed to be detained. The reason that that was so important is because prior to us having 287G, the ICE staffing was not where it could be to cover all of Massachusetts. So if they were up in the Burlington area and had to travel down here, once we told them somebody had just been brought in, oftentimes that individual before the ICE officer could get here might be able to get bail and get out back into the community again, which made created greater risk for somebody that was already arrested for who knows what, rape or whatever else they were arrested for, whereby our people with the 287G would have the ability to hold them and ICE wouldn't have to try to race down here and beat the clock, hoping that they can get here in time. So about two years ago, and this is after 20, almost 24 years of doing all of that with ICE and having the critical partnerships that we all knew were necessary, particularly following what we learned after 9-11. I got a call one morning on my way into work about eight o'clock, and it was from my special agent in charge in Boston saying, can you get on a three-way phone call in the next 15 minutes? I said, okay, what's going on? He said, well, it's not good if you just call in in, in this next uh, uh, 15 minutes. So I called in, a regional ICE person got on and said, Sheriff, I got some bad news. I said, what's that? We're going to be shutting down your entire ICE operation. Wow. I said, why? Why, why, would, why would you be doing that? We've never failed an audit in our entire 24 years doing this. We were a model for the nation. We had just, there was a, a plaque that was supposed to be delivered uh, where we had had an a, um, audit done on our 287G program a month earlier where we got a perfect score on the, on the audit. There was a plaque that was issued from Washington, D.C. saying, congratulations, Bristol County, on your perfect score on your 287G audit. We literally were the model for the nation. And I said to the, the gentleman, I said, why would you be shutting our operation down? And he said, we're going to be retooling and redirecting our priorities. We don't think we need as many beds. I said, well, I know that's not true because I know that there are people pouring in over our border as everybody else in this country can see. But that's not, I understand you're the person delivering the message. I'll deal with Washington on this myself. And consequently, about an hour later, my superintendent got a phone call from the ICE regional person saying, we have uh, ICE officers on their way down to your facility. 
They're going to be collecting all the credentials from all of your people. And we're going to be collecting and removing all of the equipment uh, that you've been using under our programs. And sure enough, they were down here. They removed the remainder of the detainees and shut down our operation after 25 years of a, a stellar relationship, not only with our ICE partners, but also with the fact that we were able to, to become the model for the nation. So what they essentially did then was said, you know what? We're not gonna allow you to work with ICE anymore. We're not gonna allow you to maximize your potential to keep the people of your citizens, I mean, of your communities safe because our politics is more important than the safety of the people of your communities. Much like I talked about earlier with regards to the angel moms and dads. This is, should outrage everyone in America, and certainly it does with all of us in law enforcement who understood that after 9-11, if we were really gonna maximize our potential to keep people safe, we needed to share resources. We needed to share intelligence. We needed to collaborate in every way we could so that we could minimize the hardship on the people we promised to protect. And, uh, and unfortunately, this Biden administration, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves all the way up to the president, basically said, we're gonna minimize ICE's ability to do work with other agencies. We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna tie their hands so that they can't do what they were initially charged with doing and we'll make the other law enforcement agencies less effective in their communities to advance our political agenda. And that's, that's the reality and the truth of where we are. You mentioned 9-11 and I would like to tell our listeners that you did something else that was quite unusual after 9-11. You set up within your office a counterterrorism task force. And I don't know of any other department that worked so diligently to try to understand and deal with the potential terrorist threat in your community. Well, you know, that's, it's interesting. In 1997, not long after I became the sheriff, 125 public safety uh, leaders were invited to go to Washington, D.C., public safety responders, to study at that time what they called weapons of mass destruction. And that was in 1997. I went to that three-day session down at, at Xerox University in, in Virginia. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, yeah, they're, they're showing us tapes of some guy, some militant terrorist groups that were in New York and giving us intelligence information and things about what was potentially going to happen because in 93 of course they bombed the world trade center in the garage area but it didn't work but they were saying we were behind the eight ball in paying attention to how fast the terrorism movement was working and building in our country and they wanted to prepare us and teach us and one of the things they said was when you go back to your communities develop you know a homeland security task force that can start to train local law enforcement about the threat educate them but also start preparing to put a collaborative effort together around responses and making sure that you have the proper equipment, get a Homeland Security vehicle, a response vehicle, command center. And so I, I did that. But I remember thinking at the time, okay, this stuff's great training and eh, the chances of anything like that happening in my county, in Bedford, Massachusetts, are probably highly unlikely, but good training. Ironically, when 9-11 did happen, I was literally standing on the front steps when the planes hit of the U.S. Capitol. I was down there to testify on a prison reform bill. I took about 50 representatives from my region down to Ground Zero, and we spent 
five weeks there on the rescue effort. And moving forward, we, we continued to build that task force. We, we were doing tabletop exercises in the various communities with law enforcement, with city officials, public works people in the communities because they have to play a role, and all the different people that would have to respond and start to prepare ahead of time for the potential for a situation. Little did I know, looking back now, to that those moments I was sitting in that classroom, I never thought, number one, I would be on, on the steps of the U.S. Capitol when the planes hit, nor in New York. But later on, when the marathon bombing happened in Boston, I learned that the younger Zarnaev brother lived less than a quarter of a mile from my home. He went to my daughter's hair salon. What would the chances be of something like that at the moment I was sitting there thinking, eh, maybe not in Massachusetts or maybe my county would there be ever be a problem. But here, right in my front yard, was one of the terrorists involved in the Boston Marathon bombings. We are going to continue this conversation with Sheriff Tom Hodgson right after the break. I'm Alana Friedman. I'm sitting in today for Malcolm Out Loud. It's always a privilege to do that. And you're listening to the Voice of a Nation on the America Out Loud Network. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R dot com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back 
to the Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud, and I'm talking to Sheriff Tom Hodgson from Bristol County, Massachusetts. Before the break, you were talking about the training that your office was providing through your task force. What this task force did was to enable you to share information and unclassified intelligence and the latest in preparedness training with firefighters, police officers, and intelligence analysts like myself. We all gained a tremendous amount from the task force sessions that we attended, from the tabletop exercises to the field exercises to the presentations that we all got from other members of the community. This was a tremendous service to Massachusetts and particularly for all of those of us who were involved in the preparedness of our community against threats to our national security. You were also talking about the training that you yourself got prior to 9-11 to prepare for a terrorist attack, and you were saying how important it was. Let's hear more about that because after 9-11, the training that you got prior to that was really not only important, but essential for the safety of your community. How were you able to use that training in, in a practical way? It was obviously important for me to be at that training. Had I not been, I probably would not have been knowledgeable enough as early as enough, early enough to be able to bring all the law enforcement leaders together for us to create this collaborative that we've only strengthened over the years to do the other piece of what's so important, and that is protect our people from national security threats. And of course now, terrorists coming in over our southern border. I think you have done a tremendous service to the people of Massachusetts with this task force because what this did was to share open source intelligence and training expertise with the people who would be on the scene in the event of a real attack. When the Charnayev brothers detonated two pressure cooker bombs at the end of the Boston Marathon, we were dealing with a real terrorist attack. And it was the training and the preparation of the first responders that enabled them to act very, very quickly after the explosion and probably saved many lives. Sheriff Hodgson, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a different kind of terrorism, the kind of terrorism that we saw very recently, only a few days ago, in Uvalde, Texas, where a deranged 18-year-old stormed into an elementary school and murdered 19 10-year-old children and their two teachers. I have no problem calling this terrorism because that's what it was. But my question is, how do we protect our children from it? It was horrific. The entire country grieves for these little souls. And yet, even before we knew everything that had happened that day, the politicians politicized the situation, even before the victims of this atrocity had been identified. Instead of talking about politics, which is the last thing I want to talk about in relationship to this right now, what I would like to ask you is this. What can we do 
to make our schools safer, to harden them in a way that will protect our children and keep them safe even in the event of such a terrorist attack. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, what a, what a tragic situation. And our hearts go out to, to the families, the first responders who had to be there. They're going to be living that for the rest of their lives. The doctors, nurses that responded to help. The brave border officer that, that ran to the scene and was able to, to mitigate the situation finally. And the devastation that the whole community is going to be living. And frankly, America ought to be living right now. Your segue is actually very good following the Homeland Security part we just spoke about because that's something we've been working on for quite some time and still do. We've been going into schools, training not only teachers, we've done, we've done scenarios where we actually had training sessions and teachers in classrooms where we would have expected and unannounced someone playing a role would come in and take over that classroom and take over them as, as hostages. The surprise of it all made it very real for them. And the reason we did it was because we wanted them to know that, first of all, we don't want you to be surprised. If this happens, you don't want to panic. You want to have already experienced what you or the kids would feel if somebody did actually do that. So it wouldn't be your first first time. But it's it's very real for them to go through that and know that, in their minds, it's dancing back and forth. Is this real? And and there's nothing better than to be able to get the feeling of what that could be, to be able to understand how important it is and what you need to do to minimize the chances that that could happen to you or your students. We also do security audits of the schools to see what procedures they have to protect the perimeter of the school, what protocols have in place for responders of teachers within the school in those events of emergency, their roles and what they're supposed to do. We need to do a lot more of that in the country. We need to, we need to secure these schools. We also teach the kids what to do if they, not only if they get in those situations to, to take cover, but also to report anything that they see in their school or around their school, or even their neighborhood that they really believe is concerning or suspicious. That includes social media. These kids are on social media. If you see somebody that's talking about doing violent things to people or storming a school or attacking a school or anywhere, we, we want you to report it. Don't think that it's just a game. Report it to an adult. Let the adult work through the law enforcement agency. But it needs to be reported because one day it could be somebody that's going to come in and actually you know, cause harm to you or to your family. So, so we, we, we continue to do that. And I think that's what has to be done. I also, I also think that with regards to this attitude that we see in education sometimes about, well, we don't want to make our schools fortresses. Well, none of us do. And it, it doesn't have to be a fortress, but it does have to be secure so that our kids and the teachers that are teaching in there are safe and that they have resources available to them to make sure they can be safe. There is a, a video I saw recently as a company that actually had developed a phenomenal protective program for the school on target hardening that had cameras throughout the school that were directly linked into the sheriff's office that could be monitored. In addition to that, the teachers were trained to, they had to carry, they had carry every day in school an alert button on their 
around their neck. If an emergency happened or somebody got into that school and they were coming into that particular section where the school was, they hit the button, the cameras are all going with the sheriffs. They could be responding there. They're able to know exactly where that person is in that area of that building. In addition to which, when they're coming down the hall, there are sensors that the that can be activated by the uh, sheriff's office through the cameras that would actually start to fill that hallway with smoke with where the individual is and start uh, sending off all kinds of loud alarms that would confuse the individual and take the individual off of his focus of wanting to do what he's about to do. It gives them pause and it gives law enforcement a greater chance not only to, to understand where he is, but also to be able to get in there in a strategic way to eliminate the threat. And so the teachers are also trained and have resources within the classroom for target hardening that kids can be put into a specialized room where they, they can't be uh, attacked or shot. And it's a very, very comprehensive system, but it's $400,000 approximately for, for school. Now, what I would say to you is that for those who would go, well, $400,000 a school, we couldn't possibly do it. Well, if we start thinking about redirecting the monies that we're, we're earmarking toward people who are knowingly and intentionally violating the laws of this country and coming in and expecting that we're going to give them food, housing, medical treatment, debit cards, and transportation to whatever place they want to go in the country, you, you'll, you'll have plenty of money to be able to take care of the people who are following the law, who are doing the right things, and are under threat by those lawbreakers and people either who have mental health issues or what have you from being able to, to uh, harm them. And, and, and those are the basic things that we all have to look at as Americans. We're not, we're the most generous country in the world. Uh, we bring in more people from other countries than any other in the, in the world over a million. And you can't have a, a mixed message around the people, the five million or so waiting around the world behind their borders, respecting the laws of the United States, waiting their turn to, to follow the, the proper process that was set in place so we could manage infrastructure to support the number of people that are legally coming here. You can't say to them, you keep doing what you're doing, follow the rules, respect the laws, and pay no attention to the millions that are pouring in over our border that we're encouraging to come in in violation of the law and then supporting them with the taxpayers money that otherwise could have been used to help the taxpayer protect themselves protect their their ranches if you will on the border to the people in massachusetts who are being victimized i was down on the border a few years back and ms-13 was talking about the fact that they were going to reclaim the northeast we had between 2007 and 2017 for 10 years, and you can look at the Pew Research Report, we had the highest influx of illegal aliens than any other state in the United States. And that's because Massachusetts is very generous with taxpayers' money, dishing it out to people that they know have come here illegally. And when you start earmarking monies for the people who are doing things the wrong way and telling the people who are potentially being victimized in the case of what just happened at the elementary school in Texas, that you're not going to give them the protections they need with their money. You're going to feed it off to somebody else that chose to violate the law. I think that's outrageous. And, I, and it's as un-American as anything. And the people that are in public office 
we the people need to come together and say, if you are not going to represent the public safety interests, the quality of life interests of me, my family, and my community, then we're all coming together and we're going to get you out of there. We're going to get, we're going to put somebody up and we're going to make sure that you are no longer going to be able to sort of prostitute the office that we gave you for your own benefits, for your, your political benefits, and put our needs aside. This is a project for the American people, isn't it? It's a project that we all have to get behind because without the support of we the people, it won't happen. But if we all fight this fight together, we can move mountains. I want to go back yes. to something you, you said before about training teachers how to deal with emergencies. And I remember some of the lessons that we learned in the sessions that we had in your task force about how important it is to rehearse, to practice in tabletop exercises, in field exercises, in real life simulations so that we would be prepared as first responders and advisors to help our communities when and if a real attack should occur. And the point that I took away from all of this was that when you go through the, the practice, when you go through the simulation of a real life event, you not only learn from it, but your mind lays down a neural path so that should the event happen, you're not unprepared, you, you recall what you have learned and you're able to use it and you know what to do and that can save lives. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's so critically important. I, I really believe that the more education we can give to teachers, give to uh, the students about the potential of being honest with them that if this kind of thing were to happen, they at least feel as though they're prepared. They, they, they know this is a potential reality and, and they've been trained so they have a sense of comfort around it. They know it's not a new thing for them when the teacher says, go over here, and they're suddenly like panicking or whatever because they've never never been talked to about it or never actually just done it, almost like a fire drill, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, we did fire drills when we were kids, right? We had fire drills on a regular basis. Right, and that was so that there was order, that it was clear what we did, and it didn't surprise us and people didn't panic. They did what they were supposed to do. And that's why this, this training and preparedness around, sadly, where we are in society today with regards to the violence is so important. And you know, Sheriff Hudson, that this is not only a threat to our schools, but the amount of random, vicious crime in our cities and throughout the country is at an all-time high. Well, my, my personal feeling is we need these these progressive elected officials who are undermining the authority and the rule of law to hold people accountable by saying, you know what, look at the guy who just murdered that, that finance guy in the, in the subway in New York right. and a guy out of nowhere, no affiliation to this individual, guns him down in the subway. And the guy had been in, he'd been in and out nine times. He'd been, been uh, arrested for various serious crimes, armed robbery, and other things. 
why why are these people who took it out these these sort of left wing DAs and other people saying oh you know the victim is really the criminal and the real victims that we know in their minds are invisible this is the most outrageous way for any elected official to think and frankly to act and they don't belong in office because they're in direct conflict and violation of the oath they took to uphold the law and protect the innocent people of their communities and hold those who are violating the law accountable for their law breaking and the, the victimization of, of innocent people. Sheriff Hodgson, I want to thank you for joining me today to talk about some of the most pressing domestic problems facing America today and sharing with us some of the possible solutions that we need to take very seriously as we face these challenges to our nation. Alana, thank you for the good work you're doing and for the leadership you're showing to get the information out to the American people. I believe that talk radio is going to be probably the most important venue to start to turn this country back to its, its values and, and our principles. I've been talking to Sheriff Tom Hodgson from Bristol County, Massachusetts. As you may have gathered from our conversation, Sheriff Hodgson is an anomaly, a conservative sheriff in deep blue Massachusetts who has won the hearts and minds of the people of Bristol County, who have been re-electing him for the past 25 years to uphold his pledge to honor the Constitution and keep them safe. Thank you, Sheriff Hodgson. After the break, we'll be back to cover some of the big stories in the news this week. You're listening to The Voice of America. I'm Alana Friedman sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud, and I'll be right back. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only 8 seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Welcome back to The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. You know, I've known Malcolm for years, and I don't think I know of anyone 
who pours so much of his heart and soul into his vision of what America should be, or his contribution into his dream to have a radio station and website that stands for free speech and the American dream. Speaking for myself, it is an honor to be able to help him achieve his goal to tell the truth and help keep America safe and free. Now, I want to bring your attention to a number of items in the news this week that are being underplayed in the mainstream media. No surprise there. But they're stories we should pay attention to because they're important, even if they don't make the front page of the New York Times. The first story is that the president has announced the sale of up to 40.1 million barrels of crude oil to be released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SPR, over the coming months. The SPR was originally created for emergencies to be used in the face of severe disruptions to the global oil supply. But the president's program is not a short-term fix for an emergency situation. Part of this will be the release of one million barrels of crude oil a day for six months. Our federal government has the world's largest supply of emergency crude oil. The oil is stored in underground salt caverns at four sites in Texas and Louisiana, and the Department of Energy has already been siphoning off our emergency reserves, and they've been doing it for several weeks. The government's underground tanks have a capacity of 714 million barrels, and according to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve Inventory, as of May 20th, 2022, the oil reserves were 532 million barrels, down more than 180 barrels from capacity. If the government is already siphoning off 1 million barrels a day, and if it continues to do this, our entire oil reserve will be depleted in a little more than 18 months. No one has answered the question, what will we do when we have a real emergency, which will mean that gasoline or diesel fuel will be largely unavailable for vehicles or heating or any other purpose, and our oil reserves are gone? What will happen when our reserves get so low that they no longer serve the purpose for which they were intended? We experienced this back in the days before the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created in 1975. So it would be available in the event of future supply disruptions. We went through that in 1973. That's when Saudi Arabia declared an oil embargo because of America's decision to provide Israel with $2.2 billion in weapons and equipment during their Yom Kippur War. Well, that's a story for another day, and a good one. But suffice it to say that in 1973, U.S. oil production was only 16% of global output. So the embargo really hurt us. It lasted from October 1973 to March 1974. And by the time it was over, our gas prices had spiked more than 300%. So in 1975, the decision was made to set up the Strategic Oil Reserve. And now, that emergency reserve is being depleted, caused by a self-inflicted emergency, 
that was caused by the Biden administration and their short-sighted decision to shut down our energy production in the United States. Overnight, we went from being an energy-exporting country with huge supplies of oil, gas, and coal for our own consumption to an energy-dependent country relying on the goodwill of all the other oil producers, our friends like Russia, Venezuela, and Saudi Arabia. This isn't the first time a president has drawn from our emergency reserves. Barack Obama did it in 2011, and he released 30 million barrels of emergency oil reserves and delivered them to 15 companies in response to a disruption in Libya's oil production. President George Bush in 2005 did it after Hurricane Katrina damaged oil refineries in the Gulf of Mexico. And his father, President George H.W. Bush, did it in 1991 during Operation Desert Storm. What is different about it this time, as I mentioned before, is that this is the first time that a president was responsible for the self-inflicted wound that shut down our own energy production and made us dependent upon other countries in the world. There are many good arguments against the Biden policy responsible for this. The policy is short-sighted, costly, and of all things, it is unsound ecologically. For an administration that prides itself on green programs designed to, quote, save the earth, unquote, this policy is beyond stupid because he has replaced our own controlled clean energy production with dirty fossil fuel produced elsewhere and then shipped to us at enormous cost and an unacceptable level of air and water pollution. Where's the sense in that? Now, there's another story that caught my attention this week. It's a story about our government and the lack of trust it continually creates in our allies as it careens around diplomacy like the proverbial bull in the china shop. A report appeared in the New York Times about the assassination of a senior Iranian terrorist operative, a man whose name was Colonel Hassan Sayyad Khodai. He wasn't just another terrorist, though, in fact. He was the presumed leader of the highly secret and very deadly Unit 840 in the Quds Force, the elite unit of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC. President Donald Trump designated the IRGC a foreign terrorist organization during his term in the White House. And it has been reported that Khodai was responsible for several bombing attacks against Israeli diplomats in Thailand, Georgia, and India, as well as other attacks against Israelis in Central Asia and Africa. Iran has never admitted to the existence of Unit 840, but it is known to play a role in the kidnapping and killing of Israeli civilians and officials for years. Khodai was shot five times in his car outside his home in Tehran by two men on motorcycles, who then drove away and have not been caught. The attack occurred in broad daylight in the heart of Tehran, Iran's capital city. Of course, as might be expected, there was no immediate claim of responsibility. But Iran, of course, immediately blamed Israel and the United States, whom they like to call the hand of global arrogance. 
The Biden administration said, not me. And Israel, of course, said nothing. They never comment after an attack of this sort, whether they did it or not. But here is what is interesting. The story appeared in the New York Times, and it came from an unidentified intelligence source from an unnamed country who spoke to them on the condition of anonymity. This story was leaked to the Times from high-level intelligence that was exchanged between Jerusalem and Washington. The Times reported this, a quote, according to an intelligence source, Israel has informed American officials that it is behind the murder, unquote. It may be assumed, I would believe it to be true, that the source was an American intelligence officer. Now, according to this intelligence official, who spoke on condition of anonymity, as I said, of course, the Israelis told the Americans that the assassination was a warning to Iran to stop operations by Unit 840. Needless to say, the Israelis are not happy. There is a great danger to them when this kind of intelligence is released to the public and particularly to their enemies. This creates tremendous risk for Israel, for the Israeli civilian population, and for the entire country. Because Iran has vowed to totally destroy Israel and wipe it off the map. They are furious that an ally like the United States would leak such sensitive intelligence to the New York Times. According to the Israeli newspaper, Idiot Ahranot, Israeli officials have demanded an explanation from their American counterparts regarding the leaking of such highly secret intelligence. You know, the Democrats have been infamous for their willingness to leak sensitive information to the press in order to gain political advantage. And there is a small but extremely vocal anti-Israel element in the Biden administration. But it is the depth of political depravity when sensitive intelligence of this kind is purposely released to the press that can affect the fate of an entire nation, whether it lives or dies whether its people live or die. And this is such a case because Iran will accept no half measure and the insanity of its leaders may be perfectly okay with annihilating millions of people in order to satisfy their lust for religious superiority and revenge. Iran has been significantly increasing its stockpile of enriched uranium Israel's defense minister has warned the United States that Iran is just weeks away from having enough resources for a nuclear weapon. In the meantime, Israel and the United States are planning a joint large-scale military drill simulating a potential attack on Iranian nuclear facilities. This massive drill will aim to develop a realistic military option against Iran if it becomes necessary. This is a situation that bears watching, my friends. Stay tuned. This is far from over. Recently, our Congress voted to send $40 billion to Ukraine to help them fight their war against Russia. The Senate overwhelmingly approved the infusion of military and economic aid for Ukraine 
As both parties, Democrats and Republicans, rallied behind America's latest and quite possibly not the last financial contribution against Russia's inexcusable scorched earth invasion, murder, and destruction of a country that only a few months ago was alive and thriving. The 86 to 11 vote gave final congressional approval to the package, and it surpassed Biden's request for a smaller $33 billion package. It's not often that I agree with Democrats like Chuck Schumer. Of course, I know he loves to spend our money on his favorite projects, and the more money, the better. That's why I find it so difficult to agree with anything he does. But in this case, although I am for the most part in complete agreement with those who say America first, I think, for once, we are doing the right thing to support Ukraine in this insane slash-and-burn war that Russia has started unprovoked and refuses to stop. Over the years, America has stood by when massacres of the most horrendous kind have taken place. When Joseph Stalin murdered 20 million people in addition to the 20 million Russians who were killed in battle, we stood by and did nothing. When Adolf Hitler murdered 12 million men, women, and children, including 6 million Jews, we did nothing to save them. In 1939, we even sent a shipload of nearly a thousand Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany back to Hitler's concentration camps and certain death. We refused to let them in. And when Russia was slaughtering Chechen civilians and nearly wiped the country off the map, we did nothing. And when nearly three-quarters of a million Tutsi were massacred in Rwanda, we did nothing. Maybe we can deny that we knew when all this was going on, that we didn't understand what was going on. It's a weak excuse, but it has been used over and over again. But today, today in 2022, we have no excuse. We can see in real time as we sit in our comfortable living rooms the horror of Russia's scorched earth policy of death and destruction in Ukraine. Total destruction. No half measures. No safety in residential areas. No safe spaces. Everything is a target. Hospitals, schools, community centers, apartment buildings. Everything is a target. And Russia has taken them out and leveled the landscape. We can count the dead and we can welcome the refugees who were lucky enough to get out alive. But we have no excuse not to help. And when we see with our own eyes the courage and intense fortitude of the Ukrainian people, we have no excuse not to help. So yes, I am in favor of the bill to help Ukraine fight off the evil that is now Putin's Russia. It's an effort that is long overdue. Did I ever tell you that I live on a farm? Way in the middle of nowhere. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And this is one of the best seasons of the year when everything begins to come to life again. It's May, and that means spring. It's still a bit chilly in many parts of the country, and the weather has been wild. But spring is a time of hope. It's a time of renewal. When I'm not writing and broadcasting, 
I'm outside on the farm with my sheep and my chickens, enjoying the change in the seasons. We have four lambs this year, all strong and beautiful. There's something about the changing seasons, the order of things, as winter turns into spring and spring into summer every year, it's healing and refreshing. Someone once said that the idea that God didn't create all this wonder, the orderliness of the world, the day always turning into night and then back into day again, and the seasons coming in their turn. To say that God didn't create all this is like saying that the Webster Unabridged Dictionary is the product of an explosion in a print factory. It's a bit of a stretch to try to say that today in this age of bits and bytes. Who knows about cold type and print factories? But still, I like the picture. Well, the hour has flown, as it usually does, and there is hardly any time left, except to tell you that I'm glad I could share this time with you. And maybe, just maybe, we were able to make a little bit of sense of the world we live in. The news of the world is all too often grim and unsettling, but trying to make sense of it in the company of friends is always worth doing. You've been listening to the voice of a nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud, talking out loud on the America Out Loud Network.